Well, it's good to see you, church. We're greeted. We've shaken hands and hugged and given hellos. All right. Last week, we had a, um, a fantastic story and testimony. It was sort of a spontaneous moment. I invited my friend Carol to share her story of a moment where she was in South Sudan and was abducted by two armed people. If you want to hear her amazing story and how God moves powerfully in prayer, please go listen to last week's message. Zoom into the middle of the message and check out her story. It will encourage you. Uh, This week, we are now diving into an incredible passage in Mark. We are watching the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders escalate, and we're watching what happens when living faith collides with dead religion. And the way that dead religion resists the living faith of God in our life, in our world. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you're comfortable, stand. And if you're more comfortable seated, please remain seated. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 12. Jesus is lighting it up. Verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest. Can you say with me, harvest? Because there's coming a harvest time. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. And he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? Here he's quoting from Psalm 118. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, ah, yeah. Um, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. And later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Come on, you gotta love that. I love that moment. 
Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they say Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, now watch, they're going to get tricky here on Jesus. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Gotcha, Jesus. And Jesus replied, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. See, when the dead rise, and mark my words, they will, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, nor will they be like the, or they will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Amen to that. You are badly mistaken. Woo. This is God's word for us today. Let us pray. God, thank you for bringing us here this morning. None of us here are here by accident. God, we are here, whether through a friend, a family member, or just a nudge in our own hearts. God, you have brought us here today to hear from your word, to be in, in your house, to be with your people, because God, you have something you want to say to us. And you love each one of us, and you want to reveal your heart and love to each one of us this morning. And so, Lord, we receive you. Help us to hear what you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, if you were to summarize this passage, how would you summarize it? You know, how would you sum up this whole passage? Certainly, it's a passage where we see Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders is escalating. And as gracious as Jesus is as a person, he's not afraid of conflict. Some of us love conflict too much. <laughs> but some of us are conflict avoidant. In Jesus, we see just the perfect balance. Now, but if you had to summarize the escalating conflict here, how would you do it? I want to appeal to the great theologian Gary Larson and his comic strip to help us assess. Now, here in this strip, we see a perfect summary. We see the, the trivia tonight host on the left. We see God radiating in unapproachable light in the middle, and we see Norman. Norman, the previous uh, trivia champion. God has 1,065 points, and Norman, with his shoulders on his hips, has zero. The caption reads, that's right, the answer is Wisconsin. Another 50 points for God. And uh-oh, looks like Norman, our current champion, hasn't even scored yet. <laughs> the Pharisees are a lot like Norman. And they've got, they just are convinced they know all the answers and they are throwing everything they can in the, chicken, in the kitchen sink at Jesus. And one by one, Jesus is just cutting through all of their questions, their attempts to trap him, deceive him and manipulate him. And we could easily say right now, Jesus, 1,065 religious leaders, zero. And we're going to look at this morning at the way that the escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders highlights a tension in our lives when the living faith of Jesus Christ comes up against the dead religion in our life, in our church, and in our world. And this is so important for us because Jesus came to revive us. 
He came to revive the people of God from the ways in which they were trapped, enslaved, deceived, and holding on to dead religion. And one thing we need to understand when we read these scriptures is that every generation has to recognize the places of dead religion in our lives individually, corporately, communally, so that Jesus can renew and revive us to his living faith. We will all have to face those places in our life at times. And what I love about this passage is the way that Jesus comes to revive us with living faith. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is how we're going to summarize and walk through the passage today. We're going to look at the passage through the lens of three conflicts. Okay, there's the conflict of the vineyard. This parable, this prophetic parable that is both foretelling and forthtelling. We'll talk about that. And what Jesus has to reveal about dead religion through that parable and the invitation to living faith for us today. Then secondly, there's the conflict over taxes. This is a socio-political controversy that the Pharisees and the Herodians try to draw Jesus in um, to alienate him and scandalize him and uh, discredit him. And then we'll look at the, uh, the conflict around the resurrection. This is a theological controversy of the time. And again, we'll watch how Jesus engages each of, the, each of these moments and what it means for us today so we don't fall into the trap of dead religion in our day. Okay? Here we go. Let's start with the first conflict and the way in which Jesus sets the stage and helps us, gives us a lens through this parable to understand what is happening with his presence in Jerusalem to the cross and what is going on between him and the religious leaders and why they are having such a hard time with him. The conflict over the vineyard. Let's look at verse 10. It says this, Jesus quoting Psalm 118 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our lives. Now, this is how he sums up that whole parable of the owner sending servants who keep getting killed. And then the owner sends his son, and he's killed as well. This psalm you, is a prophetic word from hundreds of years before Jesus' ministry at this point predicting what is about to happen in Jesus's ministry. But first, let's talk about the cornerstone. Let's show the image of the cornerstone. The cornerstone is something they would use when they would build buildings out of stone. Here's the cornerstone, this big purple, pink stone. They would lay this big stone down first, and they would use it as a reference point and align all the other individual stones with that stone so that the building was aligned and had integrity and could stand as a structure. And what Jesus is saying is that he himself is that cornerstone. Now think about the religious um, time, or the, uh, culture of the time. There's all these different religious sects. That's what we're seeing in this passage. There are the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders. There's all these different religious leaders, and they all have these competing theological and political views, and it was dividing the church, and the, or the people of God, I should say, at the time. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 the truth comes from me, and unity and integrity uh, in the people of God comes around aligning around Jesus, and that is an invitation to, to be freed from all the political controversies that can separate us as the people of God. Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever seen that kind of division happen? The thing is, 
as Jesus highlights this, he's highlighting the fact that in today's day and culture, um, we see it as well, that bad religion and dead religion is the root cause behind so much of the grief, the sadness, and the disillusion that people can have with Christianity today. Have you ever seen anything in Christianity that made you sad? Have you ever seen anything happen on the news where it just broke your heart and made you wonder, is this whole Jesus thing really true and authentic? Or maybe you've met somebody who doesn't go to church anymore because of the hypocrisy that they have seen in the church, because of what they've seen in the news and the tabloids of financial malfeasance, child abuse, oppression, where there should be liberation. Have you ever seen stuff like that? That's what Jesus is highlighting here. Now, in particular, what he's getting at is this psalm that he inserts into the parable is used to interpret the parable and his own ministry. And so the rejection that he's referring to that we see with all the servants and the son is a foreshadow of his death on the cross. And it's revealing the root cause of why they're rejecting him. It's not because he's out of alignment. It's because they are out of alignment with him. And when there is division, oftentimes because we, as the people of God, are out of alignment with Jesus Christ. You know what? Predicts and looks forward to Jesus' death on the cross. And so when Jesus says, quotes the cornerstone, he's saying, I'm the cornerstone. Not just him, but what he's about to do when he dies on that cross. The cross represents Jesus' posture as a servant king. He's not coming to overthrow the Romans. Now, this is really important as we see ourselves as Christians in a, in a culture where we feel threatened in our values and our ability to live out our faith. Because the, the Jews at the time felt the exact same way and even more so. And so as Jesus shows up, they are looking for a Messiah who will confront the external threat to their life and their faith. But Jesus is coming to flip the script and say, no, the biggest threat is not external, it's internal. It's the way in which we as the people of God get stuck in dead religion and get off track with what God is doing in his purpose. Look at this verse, Mark 10, 45. When Jesus says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, this defied all the expectations that God's people had about the Messiah. The Messiah would come to free them, not from the Romans, because that wasn't their greatest threat. It was the dead religion that they were holding on to. Now, in particular, for this parable, what does it mean? Where, where do we see the dead religion? Here it is. Dead religion tempts us to see ourselves as the owner rather than seeing ourselves as God's servants in his household. See, Jesus is the servant king. So we, as God's people, we are just tenants. We are servants in the household of God. But when the people of God think they are the owners, what happens is they begin to crowd out God of their life because when God comes and starts to show up in our agendas and our plans and our families and our finances 
and our purposes and our agendas, it's disruptive and it begins to threaten our hold on what we see needs to happen, on where we see our lives going. For example, I'm in college and this is a story I've shared with some of you guys, but I had never prayed and asked God what he wanted to do with my life. I'd never opened that area of my life. No, God, you just stay out of there. We don't need you there. I got that handled, thank you. And when God started to meddle in this, these career dreams of mine, God started to challenge those dreams with his vision for my life. It could be in the way that we carry our finances and the way that we carry um, our view of the church. Jesus shows up and starts to meddle and challenges our ownership. And what we see here is that dead religion wants us to deceive us into thinking we got to be in control of it versus, no, we're servants of what God is doing. And this is what the church is about. The church exists to help the outsider become an insider with God, to help those who are far from God come near to God. It doesn't exist for our glory and for our comfort. No, don't get me wrong. God's blessings are for us to enjoy, but it's also for his glory and to reveal him to those who are outside of his grace so that the lost and the left out can come home to the Father. So he's confronting that in them. Number two, the second conflict is the conflict over taxes. And we see that in verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Now, the Pharisees, let's go back to the summary slide right here. Now, um, this is a socio-political controversy. And, and here's the trap. The trap is, if, they, if Jesus says, yes, give the tax to Caesar, the Pharisees can discredit Jesus with the people because the people hate taxes. How many people here love taxes? You know, it's, if, if it was even more, it was used as an oppressive tool way beyond anything we experience today. And so to say, yeah, give, pay your taxes, it would have discredited Jesus with the popular support of the people. If he were to say, no, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians who work with Roman authority could report him as a revolutionary and have him arrested and bring the Roman authorities down on him. So do you see the trap here? So they're trying to catch Jesus. Which side are you going to take on this controversial topic? Can you think of a controversial topic where we find ourselves stuck on the horns of a dilemma? We talk about oh, any number of things. You know, I remember during the pandemic, the talk about the mask was like, oh no, this is going to like just define if you're saved or not, you know, if you're even a Christian anymore, right? And you feel this pressure. Gosh, what side do I take on this when it comes to really hot button and important issues? Now, what's interesting is the way Jesus engages this. And what he says to them is, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar. What is Jesus doing in this moment? What can we learn from Jesus about how to enter these controversial moments with him? Now, listen, dead religion. Dead religion is so focused on what it is against that it loses sight of what God is for. Let me explain. See, the reason why this is a trap is because the Jews are so threatened by the external threat of the Roman government that they are so focused on the Romans that they are losing sight of what God is for. And that can happen with us. We became so focused on the threats of secular culture, on our lives, on our rights, 
that we begin to lose touch with what God is about. Now, don't get me wrong. What Jesus is not teaching here is that we're to be ignorant, stick our head in the sand like an ostrich, and pretend like threats don't exist. There's an awareness of it. So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then he redirects their focus where it needs to be. But give to God's what is God's. Yeah, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I'm not worried about that. Give to the government what it asks. But there's a higher authority, and to that higher authority, to God, we need to give God's what is God's. So let me ask you this. What is God's? What is God's? What does he mean by that here? Well, on the one hand, we could say, well, everything is God's. Yes. So ultimately, God has authority over our life because we were made in his image. The coin is in Caesar's. We are in God's. We are his. There is a higher authority. But more importantly, in the passage, in this text, where is he showing concern for their lack of attention to give God's what is God's? Here it is. We look at Mark eleven seventeen. He talks about the den of robbers. Do you remember that? A couple weeks ago. He's like, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. And then secondly, in Mark 12, 40, he's like, we'll see it next week. He accused the religious leaders of devouring the widow's houses. Do you see that there? He's like, look, you are taking the temple, you're taking the financial gifts, and you're using it for your own profit rather than using it for those who are marginalized and vulnerable. You're not using it for God's purpose, but you're using it for your own profit and preferences. What does that look like for us today? Okay, a couple examples. What does it look like for us to get so focused externally and focus on the threats outside or focus on our personal preferences, we lose touch with what it's all about. It can be in something simple like this. It can be like getting so focused on the style of the worship music, you know, and we begin to pass spiritual judgment on the music, right? Because we're like, oh, no, this is not very spiritual anymore because it got too loud. You know, oh, this can't be spiritual anymore because, it, you know, they, oh, they rolled out a guitar. No way. Can that be pleasing to God if there's a guitar involved in here? Mark tells a story for him of back in the day when um, he was trying to be aware of the sensitivities of the church and the believers in the church because they were just attached to certain things as their preference. And he would every day walk by the organ. He wanted to get the organ off the stage and he wanted to use keyboards and guitars. You know what he did? He would walk out every day and just kind of give it a nudge. <laughs> and then he would go teach. And the next week, you give it another quarter-inch nudge, and, by, and soon enough, the, 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 the piano was off stage, and no one noticed. He's like, Ryan, you got to be careful. You don't change things too fast. You change things, and people freak out. You move their cheese. Oh, we get attached to things by preference. I think sometimes because uh, we feel threatened by what's happening, and we want things to stay the same and we want to feel secure. Understandable. That's understandable. But the trap is this, is that we can lose sight of what God is for and what he's about. But when the people of God don't fight what's happening in culture by being against culture, but fight what's happening in culture by giving to God's what is God's, those are the moments in history when we see renewal break out. See, this is what can happen for us as the people of God. This is our potential trap as followers of Jesus, that when we feel threatened by culture, that we take a position and fight against culture because we don't want to give to culture 
And we're afraid of giving to culture what is culture's in that we're going to lose our distinctiveness rather than giving to God's what is God's and focusing on what is God's. What does it look like to give God's what is God's and give to him what he wants? And I want to just, we're going to talk today about this amazing thing that's happening in Asbury and these moments in history where God breaks out in revival when the people of God don't focus on what they're against as much as they focus on what God is for and they begin to turn their hearts to the move of God. And that gets us to the next conflict, which is over the resurrection. And as we talk about the resurrection, I'm going to read this to you, verse 24. Look at this. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, but you are badly mistaken. Dead religion happens when we begin to lose faith in God's word as his authoritative word, and when we lose faith in God's power to move in our world today. His power to save, his power to renew our faith, his power to heal and to reconcile and to move. Now that's the Sadducees. See, the Sadducees, they want to trap Jesus into this idea of the resurrection because they don't believe the resurrection exists. They look at the Bible and go, the first five books of the Bible are all you need. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything else you don't need. They don't believe in the supernatural power of God. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrections. They don't believe in all that mumbo jumbo. And they want to make Jesus look foolish. Like, oh, aren't you quaint, Jesus? You believe in miracles today? Good for you. Oh, look at you. You believe in the Bible? That's nice. But see, the Sadducees, they're sophisticated. They're educated. They don't believe in that stuff anymore. They've moved on. The Bible is nothing but fables and mythology to give us principles but it's not really true. But when you look at Jesus here, look at the way he handles God's word. He goes, do you, he goes you do not know the scriptures. And later in verse 26, look at that. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Jesus draws his view of reality from the Bible because he holds the Bible as authoritative in his life. Do you ever struggle to do that? Do you ever get the Bible and go, it is so old. Can this thing literally have any authority in my life? Does this really, come on, it's 2,000 years old. Does it really have anything to say to me today about my dating life? You with me? Have you ever felt like maybe this thing is so old, it hasn't have anything to say about my identity, about sexuality, about the things that really are happening in today's world? Maybe it's a bunch of suggestions Times of revival are moments when God's people, they wake up from that cynicism and that sophistication, and they come back to God's word as a library of his promises for them in their life, in that moment, wherever they are, right then and there. And number two, where sometimes people want to separate God's word from God's power, there's a renewed faith when you see the promises of God, that God is still ready to act in power on that promise in our life right now. And he's ready to intervene. I remember I started reading these stories of God moving in these history books about revival and going, man, what God did in my life in bringing me to faith, God could do in a whole family. He could do in a whole city. 
and the promises that I saw of God moving through the book of Acts where he shows up. It's not just one person, but thousands of people coming to faith. Not because the believers of that time took sophisticated positions um, against the Roman government, but because they were willing, yeah, give to Caesar what is Caesar, pay him his taxes. Don't worry about that, but make sure you're giving to God's what is God's. And what did they do? Jesus told them, just stick around and pray and be filled with my Holy Spirit and watch what happens when my people give to God's what is God's. And the Spirit of God came upon them, and then you see thousands of people starting to come to faith. Right now, that's happening. I want to show the picture of Asbury. In Asbury, it's a college right now in Kentucky, and look at this picture. It's, it's recent, and since February 8th, people have been gathering to worship and pray nonstop since February 8th. I'm talking 24 hours a day straight of people not wanting to leave because they are giving to God's what is God's and they're getting filled with the presence of God. And it's attracting people by the thousands to this little town, Wilmore, in Kentucky. Have you ever heard of Wilmore? Yeah, I bet you've never heard of it. But right now, people from all over the world are flying to Wilmore and crowding the airports because something is happening. And if you're wondering, Ryan, what can a little moment like this do, which is how we feel about our prayer life? We can often feel that giving God what is God's, what can that do to change the world? What can that do in the face of our government, in the face of what's happening in our schools, what's happening around us in our family's life? We can feel powerless and intimidated and feel we've got to fight, fight, fight the world. And God is saying, yeah, be aware. Take a stand, but don't focus first on fighting the world. Focus first on giving me what is mine. And when you give me what's mine, I will come and I will fight for you. And I will do in your world, in your family, in your body, in your heart, in your faith, what you can't do for yourself. I will move. That is the history of living faith. And that's what Jesus came to ignite and renew in us. Because what's happening there in 1970, get this. This happened in 1970, just like this. And a group of college students from this same chapel drove in a little van across to the West Coast and started sharing the gospel with a bunch of weirdos who were called hippies and started leading them to faith. And as they heard the gospel, guess what we got? We had the Jesus movement. We have the birth of a huge movement that was spreading across the country, across the world. We have the Calvary Chapel movement. There's a movie coming out with Chuck Smith about Chuck Smith and the Jesus movement. But we have some people who are in this room who came to faith with that movement. And we have direct spiritual children of that movement, grandchildren of that movement, and great-grandchildren. I am a great-grandchild of that movement. I came to faith in Orange County, walking forward at a great glory invitation at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And I think that's because a group of college kids who were giving God's what is God said, I'm going to drive across the coast and I'm going to share about Jesus. You guys, when the church of God gets distracted by the fight with culture, we get deceived into fighting the world with its weapons and we get, we get off track. It's not about being oblivious to what's happening. It's about looking the enemy in the face and giving to God what is God so he can fight that fight that we can't win on our own. This isn't, a cha this isn't saying that we don't 
go to city council meetings. We should. It isn't about sticking our head in the sand. It's about the way in which we engage and where our confidence is as we engage. We go to doctors when our bodies are broken. We go to counselors when our marriages are struggling or when we just need a tune-up. But listen, we need the power of God. And we, what does it mean for us to give God's what is God's? I want to give you an example of what it looks like when living faith is burning bright and when it's on the move and all you have to do is set your sail and catch it. Can I share a story with you? Can I get someone to share a testimony? I want to invite Nora to come on up. Nora, come on up, because this morning she heard this message and she's like, I was there. I was there when the Holy Spirit was moving so powerfully. Let's give her a round of applause and just welcome her. Now, can we activate uh, this mic right here? Let's see. I'm going to untether it because I'm just kind of being spontaneous right now. Oh, I hear someone coming. Yep. Yeah, thanks, Lily. <laughs> he's like, don't touch my mic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Nora, is it on? Let's see here. Yeah. yeah, I'll turn it on. Yeah, okay. All right, Nora, just show us in, in like a minute or two just that, that story about that the third the, you know, child in the, in the Bible study or the small group? Right. Yeah. Um, yes, I was at first service this morning, and I told Ryan, I said, I almost just got up to share this story with him because it, what's happening here was happening 53 years ago, and it's just so exciting to see. I just, I don't want you to miss it. And... Um, I came to know the Lord actually through having the birth of our third child, and we, and it was 53 years ago, and we um, started a Bible study about two weeks afterwards. So you can tell what how knowledgeable I was in the Word, and um, we started a, a study with Ed's younger brother was in high school, and it was kind of rolling at this time and he said would you start a bible study so some of my friends can come and so we opened our door and first week we had i don't know 10 or 12 and by the third week we had up to 75 kids for a year and a half in our home and they just came and it wasn't because we knew what we were doing it was because god was on the move and we opened our doors and allowed him to be who he is, and just the freedom of that. And so I just encourage you to just, we need to be praying, we need to be on our knees, and we need to see this spirit rise through again, just as, as it has in the past. So. Come on. Woo! Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Nora. There's a lot of different ways we could describe what it means to give God's what is God's, okay, people. Um, but I want to go back to Mark. When Jesus goes to the temple, there is no prayer happening where there should be prayer. Prayer is the beginning. It's where the people of God say, God, we need a move of your spirit to do what we can't do alone on our own. And prayer is what opens our life to the presence and the power of God to revive us and to renew us 
so that there is a sense of God's presence that is so real in us. It's no longer about what our dad told us or our mom or our pastor. We're walking with Jesus because we have been overcome. We have encountered the living presence of God. And when you carry that awareness of God's presence with you into the world, it sets the world on fire with God's goodness. It empowers us to live with conviction in absolute biblical truth. Energized and courageous to carry it out with crazy love into a world that needs to see that love. It's the ability to carry the absolute truth of God's word with us and allow it to be expressed through crazy love that allows the world to go, oh my gosh, this God thing, this Jesus thing, maybe there's more to it than boring Bible studies where I'm having to, you know, okay, button up my shirt a little bit more and make sure things are down to my ankle. You know, where it, gets, it gets us back where, it, where our focus should be on Jesus and his passion and his purpose to reconcile people far from the Father and bring them home again. To remind us as God's people, there's nobody outside God's reach. Not two armed people that have gotten the car to take our life like we learned last week. Not the hippies in the 70s. Not the people we feel threatened by today, not by that crazy neighbor, not by our super cool teammates that we think they would never want to know Jesus. When the people of God open their hearts and give to God what is God's and begin to pray and gather together to seek God's face, these are the times when God's spirit blows. And the prayer doesn't make God's spirit blow. The prayers are like setting the sail to catch what God is doing. And so I want to just invite us as a church to two things. Number one, I want to invite us to have faith in the God who revives. The Sadducees want to make fun of Jesus for believing in the resurrection. I think for us today that means believing in a God who's the God of the living, who revives people, who can revive our culture, revive our city, revive our church, and renew our world. And believe in the power of God again. For some of us, it's renewing our faith in God's word that what God says about who we are and how we relate, about forgiveness, about purity and holiness and sexuality, these things are absolute truth from God to bless us into his wisdom. What the Bible reveals about his power, some of us have to renew our faith in God's power, his presence to save, his power to heal and restore and reconcile. I want to invite the band out. And, you know, one thing we're going to do this week, a couple of things I want to invite you into is, number one, maybe for you this week, it is renewing your 15 minutes a day of prayer. We've been talking about this. Maybe you haven't been here and you haven't heard this, but my hope is that everyone that's a part of our church is like, yep, I got at least 15 minutes a day where I am praying and I'm making room for God to catch my sail, to move in my heart, to stir me, to awaken me. To his nearness. Number two, um, we have on March 2nd, the first Thursday of every month, we have these community gathering points where we worship and pray and seek God together. And I want to invite you to consider coming to one of these gatherings. If you've never been, if there's something that has to be interrupted in your life and you're scheduled to be there, would you just ask the Lord if he'd want to interrupt that? No, not, I, I don't want to interrupt your schedule at all. Ryan Pfeiffer does not want to interrupt your schedule. I'm just asking you to ask the Lord, Lord, would you like me to show up? March 2nd, Thursday night, we're going to gather. We're going to seek God together, and we're going to pray. 
We're going to seek God together for revival and renewal. This week, your third option, you get this, is this week, you check on our website, either I think Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to open up a chapel. We're going to be showing um, live stream of what's happening at Asbury. And you can kind of come see. We're going to create space for prayer. I'm kind of making this up today as we're going. So I don't know uh, exactly how it's going to look, but... As we go into this song, I just want to ask you to consider what would it look like for you to allow Jesus to stride into the temple of your life? Turn over the tables of your life. What would it look like for you to allow Jesus to come into your heart and to revive and renew your faith? To allow your faith to go beyond the walls of this church. You come here on Sunday, that's good but to allow it to spill over into your kids' lives, into your marriage, into your workplace, into your team, onto your lacrosse team, your swim team, into those places you're like, God, you could never show up there. But God, I want to give you what's yours. I want to open and surrender that area of my life to you. you are the God of the living, not the dead. You come to bring life where there's dryness, doubt, disillusionment. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to see God, 
your hand reaching and extended out to receive us, to renew us, to renew our first love, to renew, to give us a new sense of awareness of your love for us personally, not abstractly, not from a distance, not because somebody else told us, but God, to know it personally. Listen, if you want to open your life to God's renewing power and say, God, I want to be renewed. I want you to come into my life and shake up the places that have grown dry, routine, where I've been, I've gotten, maybe some of us have gotten distracted. Maybe some of us have been disillusioned because of some of the stuff we've seen in the church in the past. But God wants to renew your heart. He wants to renew a living faith in your life. I want to invite you just to raise your hand. And as you raise your hand, it's a humbling act. It's saying, I need you, God. I need you to come and move in my life. So if that's you, raise a hand. And that's your way of saying, God, I want you to come and I receive you right now. I want to receive your renewing work. I want to receive you, God. I want Jesus to open the door of my heart, my family, my friendships. I want to let you walk in and renew my confidence in your word, renew my hope in your power. Okay. If your hand's raised up, We'll just pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus. Yeah, say it out loud. Lord Jesus. You are the God of revival. You revive every place that is dead. With your forgiveness. With your grace. Your truth. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. I surrender my life to you to be used for your purpose to renew others in Jesus' name. I will send you out on this story. Stay standing so I don't go too long. This is a quick story. My son just texted me this week and you know my son's across the country in D.C. And you always wonder as a father, as you send your kids away, are they going to continue to walk in the faith and will they Take the faith that you've given them and go further. This last week, he just sent me this text and he's like, Dad, I need to talk to you. So he called me up and he's like, you know, Dad, I've just been struggling this week and I just finally decided I just need to let God in. And he started praying and dedicated that morning to praying. And he's like, I don't know how to explain it, Dad. He just started focusing on God is real and he's in this room with me. And I just started focusing on that idea and as I was praying into it, I just felt God's presence begin to fill me. And it was so overwhelming. I just felt the overwhelming love of God for me. And I felt him just fill the whole room. And everywhere I go, I just feel his presence with me. No matter what I'm doing, I feel like he's with me. And he's, I, I started getting crazy thoughts, Dad. I'm like, like what kind of crazy thoughts? You know, I just, I just got this crazy thought. I just want to tell everybody about God's love. It's so good. I just want everyone on my floor to know. And I'm like, okay, all right, that's not so bad. And he's like, I just got this picture in my head of like the stu- one of the study rooms. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to go there and see who's in there. And he walks into that room 
and there's this person in there just studying, and he just looks up and he goes, I just want you to know that God loves you, and God sent me here to tell you that. And they just smiled and laughed, and they're like, okay. What I love about that little moment is there was something just so genuine and authentic. It wasn't because he had to or he was supposed to. There's this overflowing, energizing thing when you know you open your life to God like that and you start praying, God, I want more of you. He fills us with his presence and all the stories that we've heard are no longer out there, they're in here. And it becomes our story. Maybe you're here and you've heard God's stories your whole life, but you have never had a God's story of your own where God came into your room and set your heart on fire. That's what I'm talking about. God wants to do that. Or maybe you have had that, but God today wants to renew it and give you more because you only scraped the surface 10 years ago. 20 years ago, you got crumbs from the table. God has the whole banquet feast for us. I want to send us out of here with confidence that God is on the move in our country. He is moving. And I want to encourage you, set that sail because the wind's blowing. Join us in prayer this week, May 2nd. Get it alone with God. Invite your kids to pray with you. Get your spouse, get your roommate. Let's just start praying for a revival in our family. What if you just did that? Let's just start praying for renewal. Just get your neighbor. Just get some friends from church. Say, what if we just get together and start praying together? You know, you get crazy. All right, that's enough. Five minutes over time. That's enough crazy. Get out of here. Love you guys. I'll see you out there with Ollie Pops. Come get prayer if you need some fresh prayer and renewal.